Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Leader podcast is Ryan Beck. Ryan is a CTO of Pray.com, a social impact company that is driven by a mission to grow faith and cultivate community. Ryan, thanks for coming on today. Oh, thanks, Darren, for having me. Appreciate it. So take me back to little Ryan. Talk to me about where you grew up and the environment you were in. It's like, what made you who you are today? Yeah, so I think we can go all the way back to when I was younger. So I'm from Norwalk, California. I was raised by my mom. And she did what I think a a wonderful job doing the best she could uh, being a single mom, raising a boy and trying to help him develop into a man that had become that. So she knew first off that she wanted to move me into a better situation uh, than we were at in Norwalk, California. So we moved up to a place called Thousand Oaks, California. I was about five or six. And so I started kindergarten there in that area. Very nice suburban area. We moved in with uh, my aunt. And so we just had a little room there. But it was a new opportunity, a new place for her and for myself. And so over the years, she would try to find a way to move us into our own place. And eventually she was able to save up and, and get a position of employment that would allow her to have her own place. And so that was, that was exciting. We had our own place now. She was, you know, still a low income earner. So we would uh, need assistance to make sure that we got the place. And so during that, she raised me with really good ethics and just hard work. She was an inspiration during that time because she was always working, trying to give me a better opportunity in life, setting me up for success, even if that meant sacrifice for her. And so that's kind of how my childhood developed. I loved playing basketball. She did the best she could to give me what I could, uh, anything that would help me be a good uh, contributor to society. I remember one thing that I, I wanted as a kid growing up was a, a computer. I always wanted a computer. And I remember we just couldn't afford a computer. They were like $2,000. This was like, you know, that's a couple months of wages for her. And so she did uh, what she ended up doing. She saved up for a couple of years. And she ended up getting out a loan so that she could get this computer for me that she had to pay off over five years. And there's this huge impact in my life. It's the gift that I remember that my mom did because of the sacrifice she put in just to give me this gift. I love that computer. I wish I could say, you know, that's uh, that's how I started my computer science journey. I just played games on it and it kept me entertained, but it did open me up to the world of tech in a way that I wouldn't even know until later on in life. It gave me a fascination for games and for technology, for the internet, and seeing how all of that developed before my own eyes was was inspirational in in, an, in a way that I didn't know. What were you interested in as a kid? Obviously, computers and basketball. And 
at that point in your life, obviously you, you grew up in a, a challenging situation, but like, what was your worldview in terms of your future? If you, if you had one at that point, I didn't really, um, have too much developed at that time. I, I was really into basketball. I didn't know how tall I would be or how tall I wouldn't be at that time. So I guess, you know, basketball was my pursuit. I'm not a very tall person. So I had to realize that basketball is not going to be uh, something I'm going to be able to pursue professionally, but I loved it. And I would say something that always stuck in my mind was some sort of business that I wanted to start. And it was really around restaurants. I really was fascinated with restaurants and cooking. And so that was a, a hobby of mine. And I always envisioned myself of having my own restaurant. That would be the one thing uh, that I can remember. I didn't, I didn't think about being a firefighter or a doctor. That just wasn't something that came to my mind. Uh, but it was being my own business owner. I liked the idea of being able to own a business, work for myself, and um, really start something from the ground up. So what was next for you in terms of your childhood? I ended up 13, 14. I was no longer able to go to, um, well, my mom couldn't afford to send me to uh, childcare or anything like that. So I started staying home because I was old enough. And that was the time that all the kids in the neighborhood were staying home. So all the kids my age were, were staying home. There's only one friend I had that did not come from a single mother family, uh, from a single mother home. So we were all staying we had no supervision. Our parents taught us to be good kids. If you, if you met us, you would be like, ah, oh, these are good kids. We didn't know how to be men. And we were trying to figure that out. And you put a bunch of 13 year old kids together, uh, boys together to figure that stuff out. Well, we didn't make the best of decisions. So all of us coming from low income families, home alone, unsupervised, we started making dumb decisions. We got into drinking and, and smoking pot early on. And then eventually that, that evolved. And so that involved into local gangs. And so a lot of us ended down that path of, of gangs and drugs because our parents, our, our moms were working to put a roof over our head, to put food on the table and literally food on like, you know, we're living paycheck to paycheck, all of the families here, even though we're in a, in a pretty nice neighborhood. And so that's how it started to go down in junior high and high school for me. So I would say that, you know, I went into, I went into high school with all this potential, a good upbringing, a good mother, but lack of supervision and this ability to, or this responsibility for me to make the right choices. And I just wasn't equipped. I didn't have that, that fatherly figure that could tell me, don't do this, do that, to discipline me in a way that, you know, fathers are supposed to. And that, that, that applied for all of my friends at the time. Yeah, such a challenging situation. You know, I think about just, first of all, just big shout out to, to single moms and single parents. I just, I've seen that firsthand through friends and, and family and so forth. And it's, a, it's a real challenge. And I know we've got our hands full as two parents raising two boys and so much less, you know, one parent with, with one kid for sure. So tell me more in terms of just the rest of your high school and, and uh, what that was like for you. Yeah. So, you know, it only got worse there in high school. I ended up getting involved in and selling drugs involved in the local gangs. You know, this was a really rough time for my mom because she saw this. She didn't know the, the details, but she knew something was wrong and she just didn't know how to solve this. And she really couldn't. She could just do what she was, she's always done is just love me and, and try to support me the best way to, to drive me to go into the right directions. 
at the end of the day, I was going to have to make my own choices on the type of person I was going to become. And at that time, being naive and not understanding what a, my type of man I was going to become, I was choosing the wrong things. I was involved in these local games, so I wanted to be tough. I wanted to have street cred, and selling drugs was a way to develop that. That quickly ended up going to even further down where I started getting in trouble with the law. And so I ended up getting actually arrested outside of, uh, outside of school for fighting. And I ended up, you know, that was my first run in with the law. And I was released real quickly. It, it turned out it was just a normal, you know, fight between high schoolers. But that was just a symptom of what was really wrong with me. I was, I was developing myself into a man that was not a good man. It was a bad man. And, um, it was devastating my own life. And I was too stubborn to see it. And it was also devastating my family's life as well, particularly my mom. And then it, it got worse from there. After I shortly graduated high school, I ended up getting involved in selling drugs, uh, you know, more hardcore drugs than just pot. And, and I ended up getting arrested and I served time in jail, substantial time in jail for that. Um, that was extremely difficult on my mother. Uh, but she knew that this type of correction, because that's what jails are, correctional facilities, was probably the best thing for me. Well, I remember talking to her afterwards. She said, I talked to your lawyer and they wanted me to get you out because, you know, it's not the safest place. She said, no, that's the safest place. That's the best place for him that I know right now. He has to learn this lesson. And that was, that was actually the best decision. It, toughest decision she's probably made, best decision she made for me. Because during that time, uh, while I was in jail, I was very fortunate to be put in with people that didn't look at me as just another person that can develop their criminal life. They looked at me as this young man developing into something that they had developed in, and they wanted to see me develop into a better person than they were. And these people coming from all backgrounds, doing all sorts of things, said, I want to invest in, in Ryan. And I want to help him be a better person. And so they would give me Bible readings, scriptures. I was not, I was not raised religious. I went to a, uh, a Lutheran preschool. That was the extent of my religion. And they really invested in me. And one guy told me, he said, do you want to be a big shot in the pen or do you want to be a big shot on the golf course? You have to decide. And he put it so plainly and it was, it was so obvious. It was so dumb, right? Big shot in the pen. Why would I, why would anyone want to be a big shot in the pen when they could be a big shot in the golf? I don't like golf. I never have really golfed. So, uh, but I got the point. And the point was, why am I choosing to do something so ridiculous as be a tough guy? Be a tough guy, be recognized on the streets as, as tough and devastate my family and alienate myself from my family when I have been raised in such a way that I have all this potential to be someone else, someone better for a better son, eventually a better father, and even now a better husband to my wife. And so that was a turning point for me. I, I really had to reevaluate the course that I was going down. And I remember one night in, in my jail cell praying. And so I said, God, you know, I don't know exactly what to do. I've been reading these scriptures, been learning all about Jesus but I don't believe. I, I don't believe. I don't know what I should do. I need you to soften my heart. My heart is hard. I don't use that language. It's very Christianese language, but that was the language I used. 
I remember waking up the next morning and that was the turning point of my life. And that's when I, I just knew that I needed to follow Jesus and this is the path I needed to go down. And I knew that that meant, I didn't know the extent of what that meant, but I knew at least it meant that I needed to remove myself from the situations that got me to jail. That was the the turning point for me in jail and has been the turning point for the rest of my life since then. And what a incredible, just a turn of events and just a change of in your mindset and the way you viewed yourself in the world. And at that point in time, like, what did you view for your future at that point? I mean, obviously things really turned around for you, but like, what were you thinking at that point? Yeah. So I ended up getting out like a couple weeks later and I went right back into the the same place I was with the same friends and I had to make decisions quick. Who was I going to hang out with and who wasn't? And that's tough because that's how a lot of people end up back in jail because it's not like they, they get out and they get to go to wherever they want. They have to go back to where they're at. It's not like I had the means to just up and leave and move and things like this. But I was very fortunate because during that time, God was working and he brought people into my life. He brought an old friend who went down a similar journey, who was going to a church and he brought him into my life. And so I started going to church with him, talking with him. Um, and that was an amazing experience for me because now I was able to form friendships that were not based on my previous actions, but what the new actions that I was going to be basing my life on. And that was rooted in faith. And then my neighbor, she witnessed, you know, kind of all of this. She was much older. She was my mom's age. And she just always had this stirring in her heart to kind of reach out to me and talk to me. And she saw all the, you know, the hoodlums that would come to my house and, and uh, all the activities as up to. And she just one day stopped and said, you know, just started talking to me and said, hey, would you would you want to join me for church one Sunday? I said, that'd be great. And so my mom and I went to that church and that's Thousand Oaks Calvary Chapel with Pastor Rob McCoy. And that was a pivotal part of my life because that became my home church when I was in that area. And so that community continued to invest in me. Um, and that was that was this great opportunity that I had while I was being, I was able to volunteer, I was able to learn from these men, these fathers that I didn't have, that, that they can show me what a real father's like. And then they can also appoint me to my heavenly father, because that turns out to be something so critical for me in my life now is not having a blood father that I can look to and say, this is a role model. By the way, I have a really good relationship with my father. We're just not like, I'm not hanging out with him all the time. I talk to him once a year or something, something like that, but no hard feelings there. And just didn't work out and him being a father. But I have a heavenly father now that I can look to as a role model of, of what a true father is supposed to be like and what I, what am I supposed to be as an earthly father as, um, you know, when I have kids and things like that. And so I had this really good foundation at this church and they were able to really pour into me and invest in me. I, you know, my story is just a, a life of not haters, but believers, people who believed in me and just poured into me. And that's what's fueled me is having these believers in my life, believers in me that really want to invest in me and, and help me achieve what they think I can achieve and push me to, to be a better person. And so from that, I actually had a, a great opportunity to go into uh, Bible college. And so I, I got to train as a to become a minister for a couple of years. And um, that was a very unique opportunity because I got to lay an ethical foundation for myself during that time that I didn't lay 
in my high school years. So I tore out the old foundation, laid a new foundation, and now I had this better ethical standing on which I can view the world. One that was centered on virtues and not vices. And so that's been something that's really impacted me as I've gone forward in my life, trying to be more of a virtuous person, someone who who not just uh, wants to do the right thing, but wants to do everything excellent. So that laid the the foundation for me. You touch on so many points, the importance of faith, and then also just the importance of community and mentorship and just people who support you or believe in you. And just comparing that to the struggles as a kid, but starting with your time in jail, these incredible guys who just who believed in you and wanted to get you on a different path. And then the friend who took you to church and the neighbor and then your church community and the, your work in the ministry, just it just underscores the importance of just how important it is for all of us to have people around us that support us and and just push us along and, and don't pull us back and don't drag us into those those tough, challenging point, points in our lives. Definitely. And that, you know, to kind of um, go into that a little bit more, you know, my story is the story not of, uh, I guess you can say the beginning was the story of me trying to do it on my own, trying to figure everything out. But now it's a, it's about the people around me, uh, the people that I've, uh, I've been blessed to be around and surrounded by that have helped me be the person I am from my mom to my pastor to my wife. These are people that have formed me. And without these people in my life, I, I couldn't be who I am. I can't do it alone. I don't believe any of us can do it alone. We need the, the right people around us to really help us excel in life and be the best version of ourselves. So what was next for you? I know you studied, I believe, philosophy and computer science in college. And how did you make that trans, like that transition from your work in the ministry to actually getting into technology? Yeah, so I worked in the ministry after going to school for ministry. I worked in the ministry for a couple of years. I love the church. That's going to be a lifelong passion of mine is how, how I can help the church in any way possible. I realized that full-time ministry being a minister is not for me. That's not where my talents lie. I really enjoy it. I love the people. And so anyways, I decided, you know, and I, I'm going to actually go to school and get a computer science and philosophy degree. I went with the intention of philosophy because I really love philosophy. I love just understanding different philosophical perspectives and, um, and where people are coming from. I think that's very important in life is to know that we all come from diverse backgrounds and have different philosophical views of, of life and the way we do things. And it, it allows me to have a more empathetic view of other people uh, so that I can help have better relationships with people that may differ uh, in you know, whether they're philosophy of life or political stance. I can, I can have those dialogues with them. So I went to school at Calvin College, and that was a great, a great time for me while I was there studying philosophy. I realized Philosophy does not pay the bills, and I don't know if I want to do another six years of school to be a, uh, a, a teacher of philosophy. So I added computer science, and so this is where, when I got the computer, when I was early on, I had this fascination with uh, technology and games. It really resonated with me. So I, I added a computer science degree. I said I'm only going to do it if I can do it in two semesters, and I'm only going to do it if I can get a major. So I went to the computer science department. I talked to the head. I said, hey, look, I have two semesters. I want to get a major in computer science. He said, you can't do that. I said, I thought you were going to say that. I laid out a plan. Here's the plan. Here's a couple versions of the plan. And I really think that I can do it. I'll have to start now over winter break and I'll have to continue during the summer. But I think if you allow me to do all these classes concurrently, I can do it. And he said, 
good luck. He was skeptical, but he, you know, he was like, all right, let's see how it happens. And so I just dove headfirst into computer science and I loved it. It turns out that uh, although I like to think I was a, a good philosophy student, I'm an even better uh, computer science and software engineer. And so I got this opportunity to get my computer science degree, graduated with a double major. And really during that time, I, I had the opportunity to work for a company called Mission India, and they're a nonprofit company. And one of the things that is so nice about nonprofits, if you have a felony like myself, they generally are a little more gracious because uh, I, I had tried getting employment earlier on um, at places like Taco Bell or Starbucks, and I couldn't because of my felony. And so I was able to get a job at a nonprofit and uh, work on their software and help them uh, move their their company into the 21st century because they were just now building out their technical solutions for their work in India, but also the greater Asia area because they did philanthropic projects all across there, thousands of projects across that area in which they had to then consolidate, put into uh, their software, and then send out reports uh, to the different donors and stuff like that. So I really got to, a chance to take my skills in, in uh, software engineering and apply it to a company that was doing really great things in the world, such as helping children read, helping women in India understand business and helping them start their own businesses, helping people plant churches. So this is a great organization that gave me this, this mindset of how I can take purpose and take technology and make something wonderful. And how did you do that? Like that was like this big aha moment for you, just in terms of purpose and technology, which is such an incredible combination, much like the philosophy and computer science major. So how do you go about actually combining those two, those two interests? And I'll almost say it's beyond passion. It's really something that was, sounds like it's really deep rooted in who you are. Working in the ministry, it's all about purpose. You know, you're not in it for the money. You're, it's a nonprofit, right? And so it, Going back to my time in the ministry, it was really about this the, developing this passion for purpose, knowing that your, what your work does doesn't just impact you and your bank account, but impacts other people's lives in a, an extremely positive way. And so that's what I was able to find was I already knew I, I love doing things with purpose and then taking technology and applying that. I can amplify that ability, much like a speaker who speaks to a small congregation or, or someone who broadcasts on TV or radio, these technologies allow that message to go out further. And so that's kind of the mindset that I had. I had this skill that allowed me to hit massive scale of impact and what I can do. And so, you know, I was able to then take that and I actually ran into a friend of mine, Steve uh, Gatina, the CEO of Prey.com. We hadn't seen each other in years. We went to junior high and high school together. And he said, Hey, um, what's going on? You know, we ran into each other. I said, yeah, you know, I, you know, told him what I've been up to, uh, and what I'm, what I'm doing. And he said, Oh, cool. Sounds interesting. I think we should connect. I want to build a website. I think you can help. And I said, okay, interesting. I have a lot of friends that when I told them I build software, they're like, I got a website. I think you can help. Then he told me it was pray.com and I said, okay, he's pretty serious. And this is a pretty serious website that can do pretty serious things for people and the world at large. And so we had lunch. We started talking about pray.com and what it's going to be. And I'm, uh, I'm a pretty reserved person. I'm not uh, extremely energetic and emotional. And this was exciting. And I knew that it had a lot of impact. And so 
and just told them, hey, let me know how I can help. Happy to just work with you on this. This sounds this sounds like it can be pretty amazing if you do the right things. And uh, so we just took it from there. Probably six months after that, many meetings, many hours spent, many conversations had with customers in the market, pastors and members. We got together, me, him, Mike, and Matt, the founders of Prey. And we said, let's start a business together called Prey.com. And let's help people grow faith and cultivate community. And that's what we did. We started off. I remember the very first thing we did. I, this is one thing I love about Steve is we didn't write lines of code first. We started off with what's the purpose of Prey? And we knew that we wanted to help people leave a legacy of healthy numbers. And so we got to start off with this, this great vision and this great purpose. And now it is about applying our skills, you know, our business skills and our technology skills, and our product skills to something special. And so that's where the work began. And then we got the vision set out. We got our core values set out and we knew, okay, this is the foundation on which we're going to build the company, the culture of the company. And we started writing code then. That's where I got to work. And it was a truly exciting time for me. Um, that was this, this chance where not only am I going to help build some great software, but now I, I, I have a platform in which I can reach hundreds of millions of people and potentially billions of people across the world in a very meaningful way, in a way that is this burgeoning uh, part of technology where these mobile applications are starting to come online all over the world where people did not have access to this and we can help reach them with faith. Faith is core to everybody's, uh, uh, to not everybody, but to, to most people across the globe, faith is important. It's one of the most important factors. And we were creating, we are creating something uh, that helps them grow that most important thing about who they are. It's fascinating. I think there's something that's so important and I would say, frankly, unique is that starting with purpose and then writing the lines of code. I think it, most founders of technology companies are probably really strictly, realistically any companies is they start with the product, right? It's like, it's the what, what are we building? How are we building it? What are the metrics? How are we going to make money versus I think you give an incredible example. Also, I interviewed someone in the, in my book who started a company called Brown Bear Digital. They started with their values pillars before they even started their digital agency. So I think that's a really unique way of building a business. But as you've built upon that initial foundation is, is how has purpose been useful to all of you in terms of not just impacting all of your users in terms of the apps and the, the website and so forth, but also in terms of just driving the culture of your organization. Yeah. So I think that, you know, there's, there's common language used in, in startups, missionaries and mercenaries. We've been very fortunate since we laid that foundation that we've got a lot of people that really come to pray because of the mission and they want to be missionaries in their work. They realize they can go work for a lot of different companies, make really good money and do cool stuff. But will it have the impact on other people's lives, the positive impact that pray.com can have? And frankly, most companies don't offer that. Now, more and more people are starting to realize that how important that is to their work for people at pray, tying purpose and, and uh, technology. That's just common here at pray.com. And it's becoming more common in the world where 
we're finding people who have these amazing skill sets. They want to do something positive in the world because they see the reports come out about social media, about advertising, and they want to do something different. They want to do, do something different that can really impact people's lives. And so laying down that foundation, that is one of the most important things to people that we interview. They see that. They see how important purpose is here, and they want to be a part of that. Because who wouldn't want to go to work every day, apply their skills, and know that they're, they're helping people fight depression, helping people overcome loss, helping people reconnect with their faith, helping people through these, these times of difficulty, just like people, you know, when, when people go to church and, and reconnect with the faith, they're looking to overcome some struggles a lot of times. And they're able to do that at prayer.com. They're able to help facilitate that through technology. I think it's something interesting in your role as a chief technology officers. I don't think most people think, oh, a CTO, a CIO is thinking about purpose in terms of informing their decisions in terms of what they probably think more of in terms of features and functions and scale and different things like that. Like, How does purpose influence just your day-to-day role as a CTO? I like to start high level with things. And I like to go back to the, uh, the customer. So when I'm talking with whether it's the engineers or whether it's the product people, I always like us to start at the customer because that's who we're building for. Uh, that's the people that uh, we're impacting with the features that we build, with the code that we optimize, with the designs that we do. And so we start there and we want to understand they have a purpose for coming to pray. What are they seeking to gain for us? So Having that mindset has allowed me to get outside of the typical technology bubble or way of thinking where it's all about lines of code and optimizations and functionality and into the customer's head. Now, I also worked in the ministry, so I'm actually a customer of the product. And so it's really helped me in uh, bridging that gap in, uh, in technology and product and marketing. And so that's been how I've done it is always go back to the fundamental building block, which is the customer. That's who we're building for. And that's what we're building on top of. So we want to build stuff that really helps them do those two things that we're about, which is grow faith and cultivate community. And so we tie it back to those basic building blocks. Another thing that's actually fascinating about your background, especially in your roles at Pray.com is how you started, I believe, as the head of engineering, then the head of product, the head of marketing, and then back to now the head of technology. How have you actually gone about making those transitions? Obviously, you seem like an incredible self-learner and driven by lifelong learning. How do you make those pretty big switches? I think in early startups, of course, we wear a lot of hats, but it sounds like you actually moved into those roles as the company grew and got larger, more sophisticated. That's one of the beautiful things about startups. You get you get to try a lot of things. You get to do a lot of things. You don't have to go through red tape. You don't have to get a bunch of approvals. You can kind of just do it. And if it works... It works and then people, you know, more researchers start coming alongside you to help uh, grow that thing. And so that's been a unique opportunity for me. I love learning, obviously. Um, that's why philosophy is like uh, you know, a core part of me. It's, it's about constant learning and same with uh, technology. I remember when I was talking, when I was in school, I talked to a recruiter. I said, what's the one lesson you'd give me as, as a new software engineer? She said, it's easy to go obsolete. And that really resonated with me. It's like, there's never a time where I cannot learn. I have to always be learning. And so that's one of the core things that I, that I operate on. I need believers and I need to be learning. And those things drive me. And so I had this opportunity where we needed to grow the company. 
And we do that through, through marketing. So I had to learn how to become a marketer overnight. And so quite literally overnight. And so I would just stay up ridiculous hours. I like to think that I kind of, I go from obsession to kind of being possessed by this thing that I must do and it drives me. And so that's kind of how I got into this, um, uh, this marketing mindset. And I said, all right, how are we going to grow this company? Because to make this successful, we have to grow substantially. I was able to do that. I know I needed product help. And so we had some great people on product that I got to lead during that time to really transition how we used to do product into how we needed to do product so that we could, uh, that we could scale. And it, and it goes back to that fundamental thing. We had to move from this, this mindset of building features, see how they perform to an, a learning mindset. And how do you do that in product? It's through experimentation. You've got to be constantly learning. If you can't run experiments, you can't learn as fast and you're just relying on these big releases that take time. And so I had to shorten that release cycle uh, so I can make it day release cycles so that we could actually get loans really fast, make rapid changes. And that's one of the beauties of product and marketing. If you build the right infrastructure, you can constantly be experimenting, constantly be learning and constantly be updating your strategy and your tactics. That was the fundamental principle that I used on both product and marketing was we have to learn and we have to learn really fast. And what's the best way to do that? Experimentation. We use experimentation to drive growth. And that's what we did on product. And that's what we did on marketing. And that's what we still do today. Now, I fortunately can get back to engineering now because we brought in some really great marketing and product executives that I can, I can pass the reins over to and know that they're going to do what I couldn't do because they're seasoned in this. They're vets. And so I'm super excited to be partnering with them because they're truly world-class talents and that's not an exaggeration. And so I love being able to work alongside people that you know are going to take your learnings, but then teach you new things, right? Because we're all students all the time if we're doing it right. And so I get to be a student again and watch them do it um, and take it beyond what I can do. And then I also get to go back to my, my true love of, of software engineering and helping the engineers with and build that mindset as well through rapid experimentation, rapid releases and things like that. So I'm very excited to, to be partnering with great people and to be uh, back just focusing on engineering. Back to what you love, but also I think it's so powerful to actually cross train a little bit and build up some different muscles and experiences. I'm sure your knowledge of product and marketing, of course, really influence your role as a CTO. Yeah, I, I would like to think so. One of the core values that we have here at Prey.com is, is empathy. And what this cross-functional role that I've had to play of marketing product and engineering has allowed me to do is it's allowed me to develop empathy for the marketing people and the product people. And so, you know, when I'm wor- working with the product people and, you know, there's talks about product specs, I, I, I understand what they need to do. I know, and I can say, no, this is good. Engineers, you need to take it from here. And this is how we can actually take the good work that product has done and we can make it even better to fit our needs and we don't need them to do it for us. We need. And so one of the, another thing that I I operate in is another principle called extreme ownership. It's a great book. It's another thing. And so that allowed me to exceed in those areas was rapid experimentation, but extreme ownership of that. And so it's given me empathy, being able to go to marketing and product and engineering for each department. And it's allowed me to 
I had to own these and, and there was no one to come and, and save us. We had the team to rely on, but it was us. We hadn't done it before and we had to, we had to own it and we had to figure it out and there was no one coming to save us and we did it. You know, it wasn't just, you know, I came in and they're like, Oh, I fixed it. It was as the team is a supporting cast. Like we went back to at the beginning, you know, my life is about learning and the community that supports me in my, uh, in the endeavors that I go through. And that was uh, uh, still true in the product and the marketing roles. And so, you know, it's, it's given me extreme empathy so that I can be a better partner to these other, um, other teams. And hopefully that shows and they, they see it. Yeah. You talked earlier just in terms of the type of man you wanted to be, and I'll insert a different word in terms of the leader you wanted to be. You've also talked about a lot of values, like being around believers and learning. What do you, when you think about your own personal sense of purpose, like what does that look like to you? What are some of the words and some of the values that you really anchor onto? And how does that really influence the way that you lead people? So for me, being a believer of the people and not a doubter of your people, right? One thing I pray, we're, we're very selective on who gets on the team and who stays on the team. And I believe 100% in every person on the team. And I want to make sure that we have this culture where we believe in each other. And what that allows us to do now that we have this, this really good foundation is we can rely on each other. I love this, this quote. And I tell my team, I don't expect tons of hours from you or, you know, where you're, you're breaking back and no family time. That's not what I'm about. What I'm about is you give me a hundred percent effort, a hundred percent of the time, because you're going to get that from me. You're going to get that from your other teammates and they expect that from you. And so when you don't live up to that, that's when we got problems. And so having this, this ability to believe in each other, knowing that we're going to give it our all, that's been a foundational building block. And that's something I try to instill in, in, in the people that I lead is to believe in each other and to expect certain things from each other and then to operate um, with excellence. So virtue to me is something very important in my life. Virtue, not just in ethics, but in excellence. And so I love this idea of excellence and doing everything excellently. And it comes back to the 100% effort, 100% of the time. And so we instill that expectation in all of our teammates. They expect it of me. And so they call me out. That's one thing uh, that I've, I've tried to establish as well as this open communication up and down and around the chain of commands uh, so that people who report to me can call me out when I'm not meeting expectations and I can call them out respectfully. I know that as a, as a boss, I, as a leader, I have a little more weight and I have to be careful how I throw around that weight. Nonetheless, we can, we can have expectations of each other of excellence. And so believing in people, expecting excellence from ourselves and from each other have been two foundational building blocks. And then, you know, at the end of the day, just respecting each other. We want people to be respectful. And I have an incredible team that's helped me be uh, be more empathetic in how I communicate, especially now we go into a, a, a very distributed remote world where communication happens through Slack uh, slash text, right? And so the communication, you have to be you have to be very cognizant of how you're communicating. And so if I were to distill down the three pillars in which I, I, I think about leadership is believing in the team, excellence, and you know, respect for each other. The believing in the team is an interesting one. I mean, obviously you can do that with recruiting and getting high caliber talent, which it sounds like you guys have just up and down across the organization. But 
from a practical perspective, how do you foster that sense of belief in each other? I mean, I'll, I'll use a different word in terms of trust is, you know, I, I hear people talk about, well, I'll trust and verify, or they got to really earn it. Like, how do you go about actually instilling that within your teams? I don't know if this is the right way. This is how I do it. I know the potential of each person on the team. I, at least I like to think I do. And when they don't meet that expectation, it's not to belittle them. It's to say, hey, look, you know you can be this person. You know you can reach this standard. And you're not right now. That's okay. We we can resolve it. I'm raising the awareness to you. And, you know, it, I guess it comes down to this. Was that the best you got? Because a lot of times when people ask that, we know that's not the best we got. If they're asking us that, they they know it's not the best we got and we know it. And I try to go into every conversation. There's a reason why we have the team that we have and the people that are on it. And it's because they're great at what they do. And so when they're not meeting that level of greatness that I know that they have, it's just about helping them realize that they're not being everything they can be in a way that is not calling out their faults. And, and just saying, you know, hey, you're failing at this. I try to avoid the strong language that could make them feel like a failure, but to help them realize that they actually are not. They're incredibly great. We just need to course correct and get on that path uh, to greatness again. Yeah, I think something you you imply, which is it's about individualizing your approach to each person. Obviously, you're going to have that same level of standard for each person because they have different uniques unique talents and experiences and so forth. There's a bit of that. Yeah. I mean, there's probably different views on leadership. I think that each person requires a different approach to that. You know, there are some people that if I give them, if I communicate them with a lot of fluff, they're like, just get to the point. I got a lot of things to do. And then some people, if you very direct with them, they feel like, Hey, this is kind of an aggressive tone. And so you always want to, you know, tailor your approach to the type of person that you're dealing with. And so I like to tailor my, my leadership approach, not so that it's, you know, favors a, a certain person or not. It's more to tailor it to meet the specific needs of this person so I can help lead them to be the best version of themselves in, in respect to what they do for product. Well, Ryan, I really appreciate your time today. Where can people go to connect with you or learn more about what you're up to or what Pray.com is up to? Yeah, you can just go to Pray.com. You can visit there, see what we're up to. You could also download the apps on the iOS app store and the Google Play Store. Great. Well, thanks, Ryan. I appreciate your time today. Yeah. Thank you very much, Darren. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast. My hope is you are walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career. If you're looking for additional insight and tactics, be sure to check out my book titled, The Savage Leader, 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate the podcast. Thanks, and see you all in the next episode.